Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome back to the Prep to Pro NBA Draft Podcast. My name is Ben Pfeiffer and as always, I'm joined by my co-host Max Carlin. Max, how's it going today? I'm doing all right, Ben. How are you? I'm doing well. And today we are joined by our friend PD Webb to talk about what we're going to talk about today. So PD, how's it going? It's going well. Nice to be back again, again. As sports keep coming back, so does your chance to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner, BetOnline.ag. Major League Baseball will soon be in full swing, and there are no shortage of ways to get in on the action. BetOnline has all the odds, futures, and props for you to bet on. Also, tune in as Floyd Money Mayweather joins the BetOnline team in a new segment called The Ice is Right, where he talks about his expansive jewelry collection. He'll give you the chance to win some great prizes and bet on the cost of his bling. Visit BetOnline.ag to check out all the odds and up-to-date sports news. Don't forget to sign up and take advantage of all the welcome back sports bonuses. Bet online, your on your online wagering experts. Again, yeah, won't be the first, not the first, won't be the last time that PD is here. And today, since the draft is draft is nearing, we we are going to start talking teams. So today, we are going to talk all about the Minnesota Timberwolves, who have the number one pick in this 2020 NBA draft. Uh, discuss their current core. Um, their future outlook and what we would do with with the number one pick. So let's just get into that discussion. Yeah. So the Timberwolves were uh, seemingly the big winner on draft night when they jumped up to number one, but I don't think that there's a clear choice for them necessarily at number one. Uh, and they've got a an interesting core um, built around one really great player. Uh, and then some guys with with question marks. But let's get into the main guy first, Carl uh, Anthony Towns. So Towns is is I think genuinely a transcendent offensive player as a big man. I, I like you see big men prospects who are offense first, who are sort of billed as as special, who who we don't necessarily think meet that. And that's because Carl Anthony Towns is what a special offensive big man looks like. Um, he is a unique scorer. And I think he has taken such meaningful leaps as a passer that it actually changes the way that you can run your offense. So I guess that a way to get into this is, is PD, how do you think that a town-centric offense should be structured? Um, I think that it should be structured heliocentric around towns um, with as many actions as possible to confuse the defense uh, to get – it's swarming so that he both has opportunities to shoot and drive. Um, his playmaking um, isn't obviously Jokic level, but he is somebody who does have, you know, dribble pass ball skills. And that's never really been unlocked at this time in the NBA. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, it was it's really like jarring to watch the level he's at as a passer now. Like you said, it's it's not Jokic level. Like, interestingly, I think that while he's made strides passing out of doubles, he's kind of best passing is not necessarily in those situations. I feel like it's more if he is like facilitating from the high post or if he's in like a face up situation where he has threat to drive, threat to shoot. Um, he can really just like pick out cutters very nicely in those situations. But yeah, I'm I'm totally with you that it's a it's a diverse usage of talent because he has such a complete skill set as an offensive player that yeah. I think you want him involved in lots of off screen actions, screening uh, for versatile shooters. Um, in those situations, you can you can get guys who are either not off the dribble advantage creators or not necessarily great shooters, which I mean pretty accurately describes, I think, both Russell and, and Culver, uh, you can get those guys in situations where they can get downhill, and then that sort of that sort of gravity um, is, is at play both with Towns' shooting gravity, and and, he, and then he can shoot with versatility off of those actions. Um, but yeah, he's just a guy that you want involved all over the floor. You want him touching the ball all over the floor. Um, and I think that that gives you opportunities for team building where you don't necessarily need a nuclear off the dribble creator. Um, but you know, you, you do need to find guys who fit that. And I think that they've kind of done a mixed job of that with some of these moves that some, some guys really fit into that idea and, and some guys less. So um, Ben, go ahead. Yeah. I like prioritizing his offense, like as a movement shooter a lot. Uh, I think that that that's that might be like his his most exploitable skill. I mean, he what, was like 95th percentile off screens this year. I mean, just just an all time like movement shooting big, which is really just like the most unstoppable thing. Because I mean, that's the way that you that you take like even like like even even some of the quicker footed bigs like out of the equation. It's not you know have them straight switch or, or late switch. It's force them to chase around screens and and change directions. Um, and Towns can make you know all of the non like bam bigs really really struggle um, in that way. And then like as we've been talking about that, you know, running him off of flares and, and curls and pin downs, just like you have to send two at Towns or he's just gonna shoot over you. So and you know that with his with his added shooting with his added passing passing ability to pass off of his gravity, which yeah is is kind of his best skill as a passer. Um, that's like the really unstoppable foundation there. And yeah, like, like you said, it, it you know it, it's just a different way to to facilitate creation than a non-traditional way. Um, it's not 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 ball screen creation or or isolations, but it's you know it, it's effective in the same way where it forces it, it it has gravity in the way where it forces rotations and you know allows an, an elite player to to pick apart defenses and take advantage of that gravity. Yeah, I also think that he should probably play a little bit more as a DHO handler, just that. You take, you know, the big man defender takes like a step back to just contain a ball handler coming off of that. And like Towns is going to be able to shoot a three. Like he he doesn't need that much space. Um, he also like he can keep the ball because he's such a good handler. He can make decisions off of that. He can, um, you know, like he, he can pass off. that. Like he's he really is perfectly suited to create in that setting as well. Um so I just think that he, I mean yeah. he's he's just a guy that that really should be the focus like the clear clear number one focus of an offense and should be operating from all over the floor because he has such a diverse and complete offensive skill set. Yeah, and Synergy only logged like twenty two handoffs that, that he ran this year, 
uh, which I mean, like as Max said, is is too low given his ability to dribble and pass and shoot. You know, with what with what he does so well. So. Yeah, I would like to see more uphill handoffs from him where they start in, in a horn set or any alignment with him at the high post, and then he goes towards the ball to get the handoff to force the, the big to go under um, on that action. Um, I think that um, the Timberwolves have sort of built from the idea of space rather than the idea of leverage space, which is that like if you are playing you know 21 or 5 out, um, depending on, on how you look at these things, um, and – Josh Akogi is on the wing. Like that's not really leveraging that space because nothing is threatened and there has to have to be a rotation. Um, that being said, um, by getting a system where the defense always has to account for where all five defenders are, that isn't just like being five out and have running, you know, a, a one towns pick, uh, pick and roll or one towns DHO, which like felt like happened so often uh, in the games that I saw um, is going to be, essential so i mean how he gets used is going to be a huge part of coaching but it's also figuring out how to maximize how they can contort space with the limited shooters they have on our roster already should we talk now about towns on the defensive end where he is a little bit less complete as a player um i'm, I'm curious pd because towns is a, a he has a lot of flaws on that end um what do you think is currently the aspect of his defense that could most reasonably be isolated in a way that would allow you to produce a viable team defense. If he were able to be multiple in, in, uh, in pick and roll, um, he's an always drop big, at least he was used that way and has been used that way pretty consistently. Um, and I think that's not a perfect fit for his play style, but it is a, a fit for um, his deficiencies. He checks out mentally on possessions. He doesn't have the work rate, doesn't have the communication rate that you need if you're going to blitz or if you're going to soft hedge, hard hedge, um, you know, switch. Like there's a want to use this good mover in, in a multiplicity of ways, but that requires a commitment before the screen happens. And that's the thing I think that separates his defensive reputation from like parsing out some of the numbers, which like his on off splits. Uh, in terms of defensive rating, like aren't as bad as you would think. I think only Robert Covington was the uh, only player on the team who had like a, a net rating with him off the floor higher than what it was. If it's like the player played more than like 300 possessions, which I mean makes sense because Towns is, you know, the best player on the team. But it's still the idea that there's a lot left on the table just by locking in on that end um, and locking in in a specific area that's not necessarily like a hard skill. Yeah, I, I've kind of felt like the the place where you can insulate him with other guys is just currently on the pick because on the pick and roll defense because like you're not I don't know how fixable his um lack of engagement is. Like he he's got a he's got a weird, like kind of OB like physique in many ways, but not as extreme that he has like very high hips. Um he has slow hips like he he um i like he, he it's not as extreme but like he has the same center of gravity issues i think to an extent um and so i think that like you know you're not going to change the fact that like if he gets hit in the chest uh, attempting a contest as a help defender he's going to like kind of fly back and it's not going to be a very good contest like you're not going to change that i don't know that you're going to change like really really awful communication just getting lost off the ball but like 
you can compensate for slow hips when he has to recover to the roll man if you have like a guy who's really fighting over screens and recovering really quickly uh allowing towns to recover early you can you can mitigate that if you have a really good off-ball defender who's really really good with his stunts and digs and can and can just slow penetration allowing towns to recover early like there are ways to insulate the pick and roll defense that i think are, are like worth targeting from a team building perspective just because it's doable uh whereas some of the other defensive things are kind of just like you're not going to cover for him with other people it's just a matter of you know, if when he gets better at them it'll be a big deal but that's kind of on him yeah it's concerning to me that like that it seems towns like progress as a defender at least, at least to maya has 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 pr- been pretty stagnant i mean he's like he still has for a guy who's still young but has been in the league as long as he is i mean he still does some very very rookie things as a pick and roll defender just like being too jumpy flipping his hips earlier the wrong way like obviously so much the, jumping ben yeah <laughs> it, he, he's very 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 jumpy oh super overly jumpy um i mean yes the the center of gravity is a thing but he's still just just way too passive as a as a, as a contester generally um, even if you know there's there's the physical deficiencies, he still is quite big, uh, you know, in the scale of in the scale of things, uh, where he should be better than he is, even given his physical limitations. Yeah, I, I think you really just like want got. I, I think the thing you really need if you're going to insulate is you know just try to stick him, you know, have him as a rim deterrent and have just help guys, you know, weak side rim protectors, guy guys around him that that can compensate because I, I just don't think there are things with towns that you have to live with because of how undeniably good he is on offense. Um, the, you have to find ways to, tr- to try to build around him. And I guess, I mean, that's part of the plight with Talons, but I mean, th- those are, th- those are difficult players to find. You can capably insulate him on defense and also add on offense too. Um, and I think like one of the big problems is that their, their big acquisition from the season, D'Angelo Russell does not really help to to insulate that at all. Um, he is not a good point of attack defender. He does not really get over screens at all. Um, and that's a big problem. When you have a combination of a guy who struggles so much when he's put in situations, in stressful pick-and-roll situations, and also like struggle, struggles as a help defender because he is so overreactive um, and his contests are so... Uh, weak um having a guy who creates a lot of breakdowns and doesn't recover on pick and rolls quickly is really problematic um i don't think that's going to change uh so they're going to need another i think like main guard defender but it's i mean the the deal of problem is always going to exist and that's kind of why i think that that yeah getting that that main having that main guard defender is important but i do think you're really going to need that steadying off ball presence of a guy who can really disrupt things from off the ball um as, as a like a stunt and dig guy um and we'll talk about that some more later uh i but i do i unless you guys have anything to add i think the d low defense thing is pretty cut and dry uh but i think the offense is maybe a more interesting topic to discuss so unless you guys have anything else on defense um i feel like we can move to to d low's offense for a bit yeah i'll just say the like the the towns uh d low pick and roll duo really necessitates nail coverage like a guy, a guy who can play at the nail, because that, like you said, the the lack of uh, ability to, to you know fight over a screen really 
Um, and then talent is never going to be a guy who's who's you know fully or he hasn't been a guy who's really really denying at the level of the screen. You need a defender to to be able to play the nail and recover consistently. And again, that's just we'll talk about guys that they could they could get to do that more. But yeah, like just just reinforcing the fact that like with Towns, despite his defensive deficiencies, I think we we we've kind of insinuated and would agree that you know there's. There's definitely ways you can team build around him and still and still have you know a successful defense with him on the floor. But with with him and Russell, it becomes much much more difficult. You know, just given that the pick and roll is just out of the out of the equation defensively. So offensively, historically, D'Angelo Russell has been a pretty pick and roll heavy player, um, and kind of the problem with that is that I don't think his pick and rolls are the best offense just because it's a pretty simple formula with him. Like he's going to use the screen and then kind of just dribble to the elbow for a pull-up and there's not going to be any help defense or anything like that because he just doesn't really create an advantage. And he's a pretty good uh, tough shot maker and a pretty good mid-range shooter, but those are still not high-efficiency shots. Um, So what role do you guys see – D'Angelo Russell's off the dribble game playing for a Carl Anthony Towns centric team uh, going forward because I think that like an optimal situation is going to be with him becoming more of an off ball scorer playing off of Towns but but do you guys still see a lot, any value in the off the dribble game that he can bring? I think there's some of it because of Towns' abilities as a passer and, and the ground and the, the inherent gravity that, that Towns has as a screener. I think there's there's room to have those guys in screening actions in more more difficult to guard ways than just straight high ball screens. Uh, working them together in off ball screens and in handoffs and pistol action to where you know since D'Angelo you know isn't really the one to, to bend defenses by himself. You can use you know multiple one or multiple screens and and pre-screen motion to to really scramble that help for him. And I mean, like you said, D'Angelo, you know, with his flaws, is a really effective pull-up shooter from the elbow from from that 20, 22 feet area. And then if you can get Towns get Towns into into short roll actions where where he can be really valuable as as a creator. So I think that's definitely. I mean, it, it's it's certainly viable as um as you know like a secondary or tertiary offensive option but like not at the usage of russell i mean russell's you know been at like 30 usage on like league average or below true shooting the last like three years of his career and like that just has really no place in in an offense with a guy as as good as towns it's a difficult spot to be in because russell has the outlines of a guy who's eminently useful and then just falls short in some critical areas um you know being able to generate easy looks is the most important thing for a star level guard and that's a test that D'Lo has failed pretty often he's become a great pit range shooter um but he's age 24 now and he hasn't had a true shooting above 56 even once um and like the difficulty when scheming with talents is how are you going to get him easy looks at the rim um while giving him enough dribbles to still you know highlight the parts of his game that are you know outlier good, which like I think the mid range shooting legitimate or the mid range shooter long floater game for him legitimately is. Um, I think that a movement heavy scheme similar to 
what the Warriors tried to run is probably like the best way of maximizing it, you know, trying to, to limit the lead up into his pick and rolls, trying to get quick hitters and to get the defense committed. But that also didn't seem to, to be something that he necessarily jibed with. Maybe it was the uh, distribution on within that offense. And that if he gets a little more of a share or a little more of a share uh, in terms of priority, but I, I think that there is a lot of tinkering that's going to be required both with Delo's game and with the offense to make the the math work and to make Delo's game like fit in line with everything else where you can get scalable all the way down for other players. Yeah, I think just having two guys with like as big of rim frequency and free throw rate problems as Cat and Delo as as your two offensive engines is is problematic. I mean, D, I mean Delo's free throw rate has always been a problem. You know, like I mean, he is he is latter day. Chris Paul and Steve Nash rim yeah. free throw rates. Like it like it yeah, truly is like the only guys on that. His level rim frequency this year was twelve percent. <laughs> yeah. And I mean it's it's rate, really yeah. like geriatric Steve Nash and yeah. Chris Paul. His free throw rate was a career high uh twenty six percent this year, which is is still quite atrocious for for like PD said, like a star oh, guard. That's just the Minnesota section. Yeah. Oh yeah. But the full year is uh twenty three, and that's the highest. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, that again, even worse. And then, like, yeah, said, like, yeah, and his how- his, minis- his Golden State rim frequency was eight percent. Yeah, yeah, and then Towns like like only like thirty six free throw rate, which is not great for a star level big in his own right. I mean, you know, like we've been talking about, Towns has other ways to to be really effective, but still, when you have two guys who just cannot get easy shots um, that effectively on their own, that I think that really compounds. Um, in a negative way that's difficult to overcome at the highest levels. And it also um, starts to hint at the problem that uh, we've we've edged around to this point, which is the like, you can have those things if you also have a great coach who's capable of getting these people in the right spots. But like it, at least to me, it seems like there are a lot of fantastic coaches on the market. And if there was a time for Ryan Saunders to um, take a different job within the Timberwolves organization, obviously his family is uh, essential to the story of the Timberwolves but he may not be the head coach of this team on its next playoff mission. And this team kind of needs to win now. So if they wanted to look around or promote David Vanderpool to head coach or, you know, uh, bring in a guy like Chris Finch or, or Wes Unself, like this would be a really good time to do that. Gentry. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's clear watching the wolves against, uh, I mean, like I, I was watching wolves sons, uh, in preparation for for doing this, and and it's striking to see the uh, inventiveness and the catering of the offense to the talent on the team, uh, and just the positions that these guys are put in uh, with the ball and with opportunities to score. It's uh, there there is a meaningful difference there, um, and yeah, I think that they could possibly could probably benefit from a from a change at coach, but. Um, you know, I, I I think that much with the with the discussion of D'Lo as a whole, it's it. I think we're we're kind of operating from a what are they actually going to do uh, standpoint as opposed to necessarily a what should they do. Um, but this is kind of the situation that they find themselves in. You know that the they're a team that's that's made some some harmful trades. That's that uh, that has encumbered some some future assets and all, and all sorts of things. Um, and this is kind of where they find themselves. And it's just a matter of, you know, what can you do? What can you do from this point forward? Uh, and that's what we'll eventually get into with what they should do with the number one overall pick. So you're saying that it's Timberwolves or it's 76ers North? 
<laughs> look, hey, there they have there are some similarities. There are some similarities between between uh, the paths that those two franchises have taken. Uh yeah. Um PD, how do you feel about Delo's potential to fit in as an off-ball scorer? Because I, I think that there are some reasons for optimism, but like we've talked about so many times on this podcast, you know, those are actual skills. You can, It's not just someone is a good shooter, therefore he is a good off-ball player. Um, there are genuine skills and there's feel and timing and that come into play uh, with being an off-ball player. So how do you think that Delo could, in an optimized setting, fit in alongside Towns? I think in an optimized setting, uh, one that both hides uh, some of Towns, you know, weaknesses and puts D'Lo in situations where he can get fouled. Like we hear a lot about how big he is, but it like doesn't, he's big and hyper skilled for, for his size. Yet it doesn't ever manifest in just like cheap pack fouls that everybody else in the NBA seems to have figured out. So I think uh, it's possible and even probable that there are situations where uh, that that can happen. Like D'Lo is too good of a shooter. He has too much, skill and like the fit with towns isn't really overlapping it's just a matter of getting a scheme specific uh attack that can get him downhill which doesn't seem that hard considering you have a generational shooting big but like i yeah. i fear that it's not going to happen with this particular coaching staff yeah and really all you need is like just just to have them in some more with some more complex and motion heavy screening actions because this the gravity that that towns commands is is so overwhelming and i mean just there's just so many stagnant pick and rolls where it's clear that d'angelo while like he can he can do that some it's just not an, an optimization given his you know the lack of burst and explosion that that's always going to be there and, and inability to foul draw on his own um, so yeah, just just getting him, you know, getting him cutting more, getting him running off curls more, just just getting him moving more, like moving in synergy with Towns. Like I mean, like we've been saying, it seems so obvious, but it it just hasn't really been fulfilled at this point. It would be so nice if like Towns was the the screener in a pick and pop, and then as soon as Towns catches it on the pop, D'Angelo is sprinting for like a veer cut, and then that veer cut for D'Lo leads into a split cut, where it's like, oh, you've le- you've now leveraged, you know the size of your the size and shooting of your center and his passing and now you have you know a great a above league average in my opinion shooter in D'Lo with a split cut with your multiple good cutters on your team like that is the sort of offense and uh, decision making you need to enable and less of like all right uh, I guess we're in 21 um somebody go set a screen Carl over here uh Gorgie go hang out in the dunker spot like as sports keep coming back, so does your chance to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner, BetOnline.ag. Major League Baseball will soon be in full swing, and there are no shortage of ways to get in on the action. BetOnline has all the odds, futures, and props for you to bet on. Also, tune in as Floyd Money Mayweather joins the BetOnline team in a new segment called The Ice is Right, where he talks about his expansive jewelry collection. He'll give you the chance to win some great prizes and bet on the cost of his bling. Visit BetOnline.ag to check out all the odds and up-to-date sports news. Don't forget to sign up and take advantage of all the welcome back sports bonuses. Bet online, your on your online wagering experts. 2020 has been the year of things happening that are completely out of your control. But there is one thing you can control, and that's shaving your bush. Our sponsors at Manscaped are here to remind you to do so. The Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0 
is a premium electric trimmer that's designed to give you a confidence boost through body image. Their ceramic blade and skin-safe technology are designed to reduce nicks or tugs on your fellas down low. The Lawnmower 3.0 is also waterproof and comes with an LED light so you can manscape in the shower, in the dark, or in a dark shower. Whatever floats your boat. They also just released their Shears 2.0 nail kit, which is the perfect add-on to their Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer. In fact, listeners of this show will get 20% off plus free shipping with the code armchair at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code armchair. It's time to grab 2020 by the horns by shaving that front trunk. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, so on on the topic of, of good cutters, um, I think that, that like returning to, to something that we kind of hinted at earlier that some of their additions uh, make a ton of sense from that standpoint. Um, and I do, I think the most obvious one is their draft pick from last year, six overall pick Jarrett Culver um, that he can add a lot of value in these, in these situations. Like he adds a lot of value as a cutter. Um, I think he has more uh, proclivity to get downhill in these like, uh, attacking off curls situations than than D'Lo, for example. Um, but he, I think, in an optimized role, is someone who plays off of Towns quite nicely. Um, it's just that he has some. So he, he himself has some significant issues uh, that we can get into in a minute. Um, so I mean, I, should should we talk about about his optimization first, or do you guys want to talk about what he struggled with? as a rookie. I think the struggles. Yeah. Make more sense. Okay. So, um, so Ben and I were, were Culver fans last year. PD was more of a skeptic. Um, I think for me, one of the most clear things from going back on and looking at some of his rookie tape from this year was kind of interrogating the differences between these guys who win by change of pace, who really, play at a different speed uh and that's how they win um and so i think that the the key distinction this is like my working theory right now is that there's a difference between the culver style of always open uh even when they're not where culver doesn't conventionally create space really like he he's never operating with an abundance of space with a traditional advantage. It's just sort of that he can get a shot off at any time, or at least this is the the idea of him that he can get a shot off at any time because, you know, he's going to like long stride you and then hit you with like a goofy footed layup attempt that he throws from his hip. Um, and it's going to look different every single time. And in college that totally worked. He was a dominant finisher uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I think it was like 40% rim frequency and like high 60s efficiency, um, high 60s per percentile efficiency. So he was a, he was a very good finisher. Um, and I think that NBA length was a really big adjustment for him. It's just that like these little tricks to get a guy a split second early or just to throw the guy's timing off works a lot worse when you're dealing with guys who have second jumping ability where they can get back off, uh, off the ground and contest where guys have, you know, huge plus wingspans and can just you know, reach things that were out of reach for college defenders. Um, so I think that, that dealing with NBA length and, and athleticism was really 
a struggle for him. And it's just things that these tricks that worked uh, prior didn't work anymore. Um, Cause like the change of pace still worked for him to get to the rim. Uh, I forget his rim frequency this year was, was really high. I think it was like 47% in the half court. Um, so he, like he was able to get to the rim. Yeah. It was 47% in the half court. Um, he just really couldn't finish there. Uh, his finishing was 23rd percentile. Um, it was bad. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah. So I think the like high that, volume guys, it was like RJ Barrett and like Miles Bridges, like yeah. the worst ones. Yeah, so I think that the the sort of distinction that needs to be made is for a Culver type of change of pace who is more akin to someone like Mason Jones, who I know Ben and I at least are pretty skeptical of. Whereas someone like Luca and I I think like Killian, um, these are guys who use that change of pace to create more conventional advantages. Um, who cr- actually like blow by guys who create significant s- separation and space uh, that they can work with. And importantly, also, I think that um, for a guy who plays with that sort of style, strength is really important um, because you create small advantages and then you make them bigger with, with your strength. Like you get a guy, um, you know, a, a half step off off of you and, and you know, you're, you're jumping – a split second before him and he's imbalanced when he's trying to contest you. Then when you drop the shoulder into him, he's flying way back and then you have the space to finish. I mean, that's the Luca. Uh, and, and I think that's the difference with the Culver for, for this play style is not yet strong enough. Um, so yeah. I, I think that once, once he lost the finishing ability uh, in the, at like an elite level, everything kind of started to unravel because I think the shooting was worse than we expected. Handling was worse than we expected. But once the finishing was gone, it was bad. Yeah, the when the always open, the always open brand of scoring kind of falls apart when you're not actually open. <laughs> and like like you said, that was the big crux of the issue with Culver translating because you need more than savvy change of pace and then driving technique and being able to, you know, dip your shoulder and swipe your off arm and, you know, have footwork and, and different release points to, to beat NBA defenses. Like the bar is really, really high. And that's, that, I think that's the big thing I missed with Culver um, was that you really need to have like plus creation tools to, to go with a change of pace that, you know, like the, that change of pace stuff is a part of creation unconventionally but i think you still need some of those creation tools like like shiftiness or strength or burst i mean like you said like luca you know with luca it's you know the fact that luca is just huge and strong that you know when he does the the herky jerky change of pace he can dislodge them you know even like even killian i think is stronger than culver and killian is certainly quicker where he actually is quicker and shiftier to the point where he can create some of that initial advantage even if it's not overwhelming I mean, like even a guy like Mason Jones is is like is like significantly stronger than than Jared Culver. Um, so yeah, I mean, just just that that was problematic. Um, I mean, it did work though. I I think the I think evidence is that um, at least in my viewing was you know when that stuff was working, um, it was I think he had quite a bit of success against switches doing that kind of stuff. Uh, where he was, you know, slowing down and releasing, uh, you know, tough ankles and taking advantage of his touch to finish over and through smaller defenders, which he did fairly often in my viewing, and he was pretty successful at. And again, you know, that that requires more more off ball, 
outsider advantage creation, which, you know, Ken, which we've been talking about for the whole beginning of this podcast, where I think Culver as kind of, you know, as someone who's, who is linked to talons on offense can still be effective, um, who has like advantages created for him. But yeah, this shot really, uh, the shot was very poor, um, very poor. And then, and then the passing was also underwhelming too. I mean, someone who, who I thought was like the best wing passer in the draft. He, he was legitimately an awesome passer in college. And that, that just wasn't really there. Um, I, I mean, it, it just, it, it's not that like, he just didn't make the same type of passes. And I mean, I, I think a lot of it was just not having this space really there, even though like, I think in college, a lot of his passes weren't really reliant on space creation as much as other guys. But you know, but but still, the the bar is so much higher in the NBA for that. And then just not having advantages created for him as, as nearly as often as he should should have uh, made that passing worse. I mean, and then talking about defense, I didn't think his defense was that bad. Um, considering he's a rookie, um, definitely wasn't as as good as I thought it would be. Um, but I, I mean, I thought it was generally like okay. I mean, he struggled with with ball screen navigation. And you know, his awareness was in and out, but I thought overall, like he he was fine there for a rookie. Um, and I still have like a pretty solid, you know, solid conception of him defensively going forward. I, I don't know what what either of you think about that. I think we should we should wait a second before fully moving on to defense with him, because um, I I had one question, and then and then I think PD as a as a guy who was a Culver skeptic, I think we should we should kind of hear if, if if this was kind of more what he expected. Uh, whereas we were underwhelmed. Uh, so do you guys think that his contortion looks less special uh, in the NBA, like meaningfully so? Yeah. Uh, like I, I was I was surprised by it because he was he was like so, so special with his con- contortion. Um, like there there are like he would be running into the most obvious charge ever and then you know, boom, my, my hips are just out of the way now. I'm, I'm just not going to do that charge. And in the NBA, it just doesn't look that special for him. Like, So the, I think that the lesson that people have learned is that craft finishing is very similar to uh, like physical tools finishing where it's great to have it, but it's awful to need it. And it seemed like a lot of Culver is that like he needed that finishing in college, he wasn't capable of just going, you know, through people or having different avenues to finish. And when those avenues were removed, I mean, there's always going to be 10, 15, 25% that you lose in translation between lower levels and higher levels. And that's what separated him from being a good and bad finisher. Max, it's funny that you said that like the finishing went and then everything else went, which for me, it's the opposite. The way that I saw yeah, it, the shooting that- went. And then because people weren't guarding him that way, the handle looked worse because the handle looked worse and the shooting wasn't being respected. The passing lanes weren't the same. So he wasn't seeing the same looks. Now that he's not seeing the same looks, he has to figure out new ways of finishing through this different type of coverage where people aren't tight or, you know, trying to recover. And then since they're here, he, since they're more on his hip, the craft works less because he doesn't have the ability like Shay to just like fully put it out, you know, onto another planet. His (laughs) arms aren't, you know, that crazy. It's yeah, yeah. A, it is a confluence of factors to me which flow from the shooting and the disrespect that comes from the shooting. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I think you're you're right about the direction of the uh, everything breaking down uh, like dominoes. Um, and yeah, like the, the Shea point was interesting because 
he is a shorter wingspan than Shea. Uh, and I, I guess he's he's not that much bigger or taller than Shea. He is a lot bigger than Shea. But he has much less length or, or at least like notably less length than these other pace guys who have found success in the NBA. So thinking like Shea, Karras, uh, those guys just actually have enough length to, to, to a better extent, get these things off. Uh, and I think that matters as well. That the, 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 the lack of length for Culver should have been a little bit more of a concern, but yeah, I mean the, what PD, what did you expect from him as a shooter? Cause it, even as a skeptic, was it this bad? So I thought that they were going to rebuild it. Uh, that was, you never really know how much a, um, a front office wants to make adjustments to a shot because usually you, you know, you try to make small tweaks. If those tweaks take, then maybe you go back and say, okay, they're receptive to it. I mean, everybody has a different comfort level with um, completely remodeling a shot. Some front offices will not do it. Other ones just, you know, want to make the smallest tweaks they can. Um, it just seemed to me like they made some pretty major tweaks um, and they didn't take, like they didn't take in terms of like being able to perform. I think that if you keep this particular form, eventually it'll be fine. Um, like I'm, I'm of the belief that most shooting forms with enough time reps and, you know, natural ability, like we'll be okay. Um, but like, I just assumed that like that some surgery was going to happen and that it wasn't necessarily going to click and that his uh, projection was contingent on it clicking. Yeah. At least. So, already. so n- now after seeing Culver's rookie year, how do you feel about him fitting alongside the sort of optimized version of towns that we've discussed? Um, not excellent. <laughs> is is maybe nice, nicest way to say it? Like, I guess to me, he can guard the guys that D'Lo is supposed to. Like yeah. the thing that I was most uh, impressed with was that he adapted to guard down in the NBA quicker than I thought. Um, he was always one of those guys whose like shoulders didn't really scream. I can guard Kawhi Leonard, um, and he has the hands to like fluster the handle of of bigger guys. Um, it's it's a different than the way that like the Bridges brothers do it, um, but like his is very like you reach with two hands at the moment of the most precarity and try to snatch it out. He's not like really shutting down the airspace of an offense. He just waits until there's a precarious moment and reaches in and snags it out. Um, but I think that his movement looked better than I thought it would against, you know, NBA ones and twos. And there is a, you know, an alignment with D'Lo where you can put D'Lo on the the wing who can't put the ball on the floor and be like, you just can't fall asleep on these hammer screens. Um, And then tell, uh, tell Culver to be the energy guy at point of attack. And I thought, you know, expecting young NBA defenders to like fight through screens, especially with the angles that they've never seen before, like flat screens and, you know, the ability for a seven foot one dude to flip a screen, you know, right before it occurs. Like that's extremely difficult. And you just have to expect that most people are going to get lit on fire in that circumstance. So if your expectation was lit on fire at point of attack with pick and roll, like he did pretty well. Yeah, that's pretty consistent with, with what I saw. Um, yeah, I mean, the some of the stuff guarding like, aggressive defense that point of attack was was pretty impressive to me um you know against like we're talking about that strength 
um, you know, kind of limiting him on offense against bigger guys. I think it limited him the same way on defense, um, especially against bigger guards. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I just think he there, there would be possessions where, you know, even if he did navigate a screen well, which, you know, what wasn't always the case, he'd just kind of get put into the basket or, or shot over or shot through too often, uh, where that just kind of, you know, limited his, his ability to really make an impact on the ball. But yeah, I mean, I think overall, like for, for, for a rookie, you know, being asked, I think he was, who was asked to do quite a bit um, you know, defending at the point of attack. I, I mean, I thought it was a fairly, it was fairly solid and like, pretty decent for his projection going forward. Yeah, I quite like what he brings as a guard defender. And I think that in that sense, he's a really nice compliment to Towns because I, I do think he's a guy who can who can fight over and can actually kind of get into these guards and give them some trouble. Uh, the problem is that the one of the reasons that that is his optimal role is that after being a very, very impressive defensive player all around under Chris Beard, uh, I was not wildly impressed with his team defense as a rookie. Um, PD, how, how did you feel about him as a team defender? So before we get into that, can I drill down and try to figure out what exactly it was that was the most troubling to you? Because like Texas Tech has a reputation for excellent defense, but I think that there is a misconception about how that works in terms of flow of information. So what is it that you found that was particularly troublesome? I mean, like, I he would just allow action to unfold pretty much in front of him. That, like, he would kind of watch a guy dribble right by him and not stunt at him, not to, not disrupt the ball at all. Um, that I, I saw him get, uh, like, I suppose this is not really team defense, but I saw him lose guys off the ball, get back cut a fair amount. Um, just, like, his, in I, I don't want to say engagement, but just his um, just attentiveness off the ball was not there. Yeah, I thought uh, the way that I kind of explained myself is I think a lot of like what he did well on defense in terms of playmaking was more kind of reactive than, than proactive um, in that like when, when offenses made a clear mistake, um, I thought he was pretty able to capitalize in, in terms of making, you know, steals off the ball, uh, even stunning, you know, stunning in obvious situations. But I think against, you know, against better teams that I saw and against, you know, just better offensive players. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with Max's assessment that he just wasn't, he, you know, he, he wasn't proactive in, in, you know, trying to make an impact off the ball. And that kind of just led to him, you know, being invisible at times, which, you know, is problematic for, you know, like I said, someone who was like really effective, you know, at Texas Tech for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, so I think that the best way that I could describe the difference between like what happens at Texas Tech and what happens at other places is that a lot of other places, defense is a series of if-then statements. Like if this happens, then you're going to go here. Where like Texas Tech is much more dogmatic. Like there is a set formula. You're pushing them this direction. Like other people will be here. And um, it's not that that's um, bad. It, it's obviously like it works like crazy, and it is a uh, extremely hard to scheme offensively but it's also you have to relearn all of those behaviors so spending two years at texas tech like it makes you a good defender in certain ways but there are certain just brain subroutines where things were a certain way for a long period of time and if you did that it went really well and now you're being told either the opposite or something different and so i think that there is um, going to be an adjustment period for people who 
Um, just assume like Texas Tech translate on, on the defensive end without asking about the specifics of what about Texas Tech was a trouble for him. Yeah, so if you're put in scenarios where you, you see something that you haven't seen before and you're not out in front of it, uh, you're kind of going to be in trouble because you're sort of – you haven't been trained in the methods of pattern recognition necessary to like see something new and see the similarities in it and have a feel for how to react to it. You just kind of were typically put in a position where – before anything happened in the first place, you were going to be in an advantageous spot. Yeah. And then you also have the other part of your brain that says, Hey, you should probably just do what you did at Texas tech. Like yeah. it's literally of having two brains and the two, I don't believe can be crafted together. Like I'm, I would say I'm pretty knowledgeable on Texas tech scheme, you know, as much as you can be from, from clinics and shit like that. But like, um, I just don't think that there is the, like the broad assumption that like defense automatically transfers. And that's something that we're going to learn to what degree and what way as the next wave of Texas Tech, Texas Tech guys come through. Yeah, so I, I guess we, we've got Towns is the hub um, on offense. That We think that there are may, maybe some ways to sort of mitigate his defensive flaws. Uh, D'Lo is a guy who's going to have to be hidden, who we think can be cultivated into a pretty nice off-ball scorer um, and who, who has some, you know, when necessary on-ball equity. What do we think long-term Culver is and how does he fit into this whole thing? A piece of a wing stable of defenders um, with semi-projectable shots and ball skills. Like, I think that the idea of Culver isn't wrong, that he's a dribble, pass, and shoot wing um, who can defend. But, like, both of those statements are now conditional. Like, he can shoot to a degree, and he can dribble and pass in certain situations. And that defense isn't, you know, he's a wing defender. It's He's a wing-sized guard defender um, who provides a certain style of stocks. And, like, that's an extremely valuable player. But it's not the dribble, pass, shoot wing, full stop. Yeah, I think he's less like plug and play uh, than he was necessarily build. Like I think he definitely has a role on this Timberwolves team, as you know, as he continues to develop as as you know a screen navigator and a communicator, as you know a guy who could potentially be you know, the a guy to pair with Towns to to fight to push push defenders over screens and you know push push scores over screens. Excuse me, and you know contest their quick pull ups. Um, yeah, and then offensively, just someone who has to be good enough. At, at enough things to like, just like stay on the floor, really. Um, yeah, I mean, the shot has to be good enough for starters. I I think the shot is probably going to open up the passing to more of an extent than he showed this year, just just by virtue of having wider lanes to you know to read through and to to execute passes through. And you know, I I, I do think that there is is you know an avenue for him to get get more effective as a slasher and a finisher. But kind of needs more creative off-ball offense and and you know motion stuff, which we haven't seen yet, and you know to be determined if, if we're going to see see in the future there. Um, I mean, he could definitely be a nice complimentary wing for for this Wolves team. Probably not like the the foundation or really a foundational piece of their core as much as we thought. But I mean, still someone who sh- could and should you know in a lot of ways be a valuable complimentary wing. You know, whether that's as a fifth starter. Or, you know, just a rotation piece long-term. Yeah, I always thought that he was a complimentary wing 
like kind of at his core, but I thought he was a great one, um, like a really great one. Um, and I think he's, he's clearly not that. I think that he's can be a complimentary wing to a much lesser degree in pretty much every way. Um, so a much lesser degree of defensive impact. And then it all flows from the shot. And if the shot can get to an okay enough level, I think he'll be a pretty solid all-around player. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys that he's kind of a rotational wing. Um, and I think that's kind of the way that he should factor into the approach that they take to building their team. Um, but, you know, it's tough. They just spent the sixth overall pick on him and traded up to get him. Uh, so, I mean, hopefully that that's kind of how they're viewing the situation uh, and don't have outsized expectations for him. But uh, who's to say? Um, do you guys want to talk a little bit about uh, either of their additions from Denver from midseason, uh, Wancho and Malik Beasley? Talk quickly about him. Yeah, I mean, um, I feel like Malik is is the more notable um, yeah. free Malik, obviously. Um, and um, I think that Malik does something that could be made a case to not take Anthony Edwards um, if you are a, a supreme believer in um, in Malik Beasley or a person who believes that there's only so much uh, dribble creation that a team can hold. Um and I think that, like, it's pretty certain that he's going to be an RFA. Uh, that being said, like, I, I like, uh, I think I like Malik Beasley more than other people. Um, and he seems to be a very good play finisher in the version of this team where Carl Anthony Towns is very movement heavy. Yeah, I I like what Malik added to them. I think that as a guy who has some versatile shooting and who who can be kind of potent attacking off closeouts as a guy who just has a little bit more dribble pass than one might think that I think that he fits quite nicely there. Um, and I think he's just like a pretty solid player. Uh, while, while Wancho, I don't necessarily think is necessarily a guy who's going to be there long-term. I do think he's a demonstration of the type of player they need a guy who's really, really active as a cutter. Um, I think that he like, I think he played one game with Towns, but it it meshed well. Um, and he, I think he's kind of a demonstration of what they need and kind of informs what I think that they should kind of look to do with that number one pick. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I agree with Wancho. You know, I think Beasley, you know, in combination, you know, both both him and, and Towns – you know, running off of screens, constant motion could could be really deadly. You know, just having two motion shooters of, of that capability is like the foundation for a really potent offense without traditional, you know, isolation, more dribble creation stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I like him. Um, with that, should we cut this part one in which we didn't actually really talk about the draft at all? <laughs> but we, we, we will. We alluded to it enough. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we set the stage for what is a really, really difficult pick at number one. Um, yeah. So so I guess we should, we should uh, call this part one. Yeah, let's do it.
So yeah, thank you all for listening to this part one of our Timberwolves discussion. Thank you, thank you to PD for coming on. You can follow him as always at Above the Break Three on Twitter. has has plenty of breakdowns in the works um, that are you know he has many that have come out. PD, is there anything you want to plug? Uh, read the Heuristic Part Three with Cole Anthony, Tyrell Terry, and Trey Jones. Yes, go read that. Uh, it is very good. And with that, um, the usual outro, you can follow the pod at prep number two pro pod on Twitter. You can follow me at Ben underscore Pfeiffer underscore. You can follow Max at Max A. Carlin. And with that, we will see you all on Wednesday.